This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante sitting in for Shoshana Buxbaum. Have you ever thought about how it is that humans started getting drunk? Like, who was the first person to stumble upon some fermented liquor, look at it, smell it, taste it, and then, you know, throwing caution to the wind, drink it all down? Or maybe our first evolutionary brush with intoxication wasn't alcohol. Maybe it was some sort of psychoactive substance, a mushroom, maybe. Who was the first person to go on a major trip and then having survived that ordeal thought, hey, you know what? That was pretty cool. Let's do it again. Well, it turns out that it probably wasn't a person at all. From flies to parrots to koalas, other animals are prolific users of intoxicating substances and have likely been doing it a lot longer than we have. One Pagan is a professor of biology at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. If you're a longtime listener of the program, you might recall our last conversation about his last book, Strange Survivors, which focuses on the sometimes circuitous ways biological evolution selects for survival. His latest book is called Drunk Flies and Stoned Dolphins, A Trip Through the World of Animal Intoxication. And just as a matter of necessary disclosure, his publisher, Ben Bella Books, was also the publisher of one of my books. One Pagan, welcome. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, thanks for having me on. One, there's a line early in your book, which, which is actually a quote from early in one of Charles Darwin's books, where Darwin is reflecting on disease states that affect both humans and other animals. And he sort of I mean, it's almost offhanded. He mentions, well, here's, here's a direct quote. Many kinds of monkeys have a strong taste for tea, coffee, and spiritous liquors. They will also, as I have seen myself, smoke tobacco with pleasure. And we should say here that these monkeys aren't presumably rolling cigars and running gin mills. They're probably getting this stuff <laughs> from humans. But Darwin uses this observation to reflect on how human and animal nervous systems are likely very similar. And then he he just sort of moves on. But you you got to this passage in Darwin's book and you were really taken by it. Well, I was because Darwin, I, I don't think he was actually thinking in terms of nervous systems uh, per se. But now we know that's the, uh, you know, the, the, the basis of those type of feelings and and the. Uh, effect of those chemicals on us. So Darwin was a fervent believer on the unity of life. I mean, uh, but the thing is that he actually was able to come up with so many disparate observations and they just, then just, as you said, move on without giving uh, apparently a, a second thought. And all of these are starting places for really amazing inquiry if someone chooses to go in that direction, which which you did with this idea of drunk animals. Absolutely. When I started doing the research for the book, it was prompted by my own research on uh, the pharmacology of planarians, because as you... you we have planarians, we should before. say these are these are flatworms. Flatworms. That's the, yeah. the, the kind of worms that you cut their heads off and they'll regrow it. I mean, the, they are an endless source of fascination for me. But then, since that's the basis of my research, based on the premise that we are not so different after all, I got the idea uh, for the book. And then when I started researching, the least thing in my mind is, is that Darwin would have noticed uh, things like that. 
Okay, so this isn't so so the Darwin passage doesn't start you, the flatworm starts you. And I wanna know, like how does that happen? Would did you come across some research? Did you get a flatworm drunk? Were you drunk one day looking at flatworms? <laughs> what was the what was the thing? Well, uh, I can neither confirm or deny that I've ever been drunk. Uh, but <laughs> but in terms of planarians, when I was working on uh, on my PhD, I was working on certain compounds that were able to counteract the effects of cocaine in cells. But then midway, I was in a physical chemistry lab, just to, again, full disclosure. And then I saw a paper in which a group of Temple University in Philadelphia described that planarians could get withdrawal uh, symptoms from uh, cocaine. And I went to my advisor, we need to use planarians. Uh, you know, mind you, I've never taken a zoology course in my life. I knew about planarians, but not very much further than, than their name. And my advisor said, no, no, when you have your own lab, you do it yourself. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, so in order so in order to test you know, what substances or, or how these different animals might react to intoxicating substances, you, well, you had to give them intoxicating substances, yeah? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so what was the first drug that you gave to a flatworm? Uh, cocaine. What does it? What does a worm do when it's on coke? <laughs> okay, one. Uh, there's two main uh, effects uh, that mimic the acute intoxication and the actual toxicity uh, of the compound. The toxicity is like overdose, right? So, and when I give a high concentration of cocaine to the planarians, they actually slow down. And eventually, if I keep them uh, in the in the media, they're freshwater flatworms. They will die. Another thing that I did was to give them lower concentrations of uh, cocaine, leave the cocaine in the water for some time, and then took the cocaine away. Then the worms began be behaving just like in the paper I described. They, they got the shakes. They would be like a, in a cobra-like fashion. I don't know if, if you can picture a worm anchored at the bottom and then they will rise their heads and look around like a, a as if they were a cobra they will start swimming like crazy like twirling and, and doing corkscrews things like that and so this is this is when these planarians are going through withdrawal withdrawal what we interpret as cocaine withdrawal uh, did they planarians. also steal their grandmother's television sets and try to sell it uh there's been such certain incidents <laughs> <laughs> what is the next animal that you approached or that you 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 started thinking about in these ways after after the flatworms well i i have a soft spot for invertebrates so bees are uh amenable to intoxication with fermented nectar and uh they actually <laughs> when there's a, a bee quote-unquote drunk with alcohol there's been certain observations that indicate that the hive ejects them or uh, expels like they, like they, them. They yeah, toss expel them out of the hive like we would yes, toss the bad drunk out of the bar? Exactly. Exactly. That, that, that's what they do. Bees kind of look drunk to me all the time. <laughs> yeah, you got a point there. <laughs> so what do they do? They stop like walking around in circles when they're drunk or do they walk around in even tighter circles? What do they no, do? No, wh what they do is that one of the things that happens is that they lose their exquisite sense of direction. And they cannot tell, you know, the, the bees 
uh, their, I don't know, nestmates. I don't know if that's even a word, (laughs) where to go. So in this way, bees, when they're drunk, are actually kind of similar to humans. Absolutely. We we often find ourselves, when we have a little too much to drink, somewhere we didn't mean to be. Yep. Yep. What is the most bizarre way that an animal gets intoxicated? Oh, there's so many of them. Uh, there's so many of them. This is kind of a like a semi-urban legend. Uh, it's about elephants because elephants have this reputation that they get uh, drunk on fermented fruit uh, of a specific tree in Africa. It's called the marula uh, tree. And the common wisdom is that they go, they actually select for the most ripe, even fermented fruit. They gorge into that, and then they go into a rampage. You, this actually leads to this guy that you write about in the book, uh, Ronald Siegel, who... Oh, yes. This guy seems like he was pretty obsessed with understanding what happens when elephants go on an acid trip. Yeah, he did that, and he actually succeeded in getting them drunk. Actually, that's another person who I would have loved to have a conversation with. He would actually take a, a jeep... And in the back, he will carry like a like a drum of, of uh, alcohol, and he will drive it to the elephants. I mean, he will deliver the uh, the alcohol to the elephants, and that took some guts because uh, uh, again, and a drunken, angry elephant is nothing to to dismiss. But he also did some LSD experiments, trying to try to get the elephants high, as in psychedelic heights. Okay, so what was this guy thinking? You, oh, like how do you, how does somebody go from being a serious, respected scientist to saying, you know what I really want to do with my life is I want to get elephants drunk and then I want to give them LSD. I, I wish I knew that his state of mind. Uh, I, I mean, I enjoyed reading his papers, uh, even though the first example was kind of a tragic one, the elephant named Tusco, and he actually died, the elephant. They injected the elephant with a certain dosage of LSD that was more or less similar to what uh, could be used by a human. And then immediately uh, after a certain period of time, the elephant fell down. They freaked out the scientists, not the elephants. The scientists freaked out. And then they started injecting the elephant with, you know, uh, agents to try to get the elephant out of his, you know, high state. And people say that's probably what killed the elephant uh, but because they were injecting him drugs that, you know, again, as you said, who in their right mind would think, hey, 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 let's get an elephant high and, and stay around? Well, I mean, when you read the papers, I mean, do they seem scientifically legitimate or do they seem just they, like something that like some wacko did or, so, or maybe no, no, somewhere no, no. in between? No, no, no. Well, they, they, they read like legitimate scientists and, and with their hypotheses uh, and everything. When they, uh, where they were much more speculative is uh, in the way of delivery, the amount that they would give the elephants uh, and everything. That's, that leads us to John Cunningham Lilly, who was also very interested in the chemistry of the mind. Here's a guy who was intently interested in dolphins and did a lot of similar psychoactive research with dolphins. 
Absolutely. Can you imagine uh, being at a, I don't know, at a coffee shop with Darwin, Siegel, and Lily? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that would be an awesome. Uh, I, if I could make that happen, I promise I, I will invite you. <laughs> Uh, because that that would be a, an awesome conversation. It'd be a good. Well, it would be a good radio show. I think it would be a, a, an excellent episode. Uh, Lily was actually another serious scientist who he was a psychiatrist, and he was very much interested in the chemistry of the mind. And to make the long story short, he became interested in both theoretical and practical aspects of LSD. So he actually reasoned that if we wanted to communicate with other uh, sentient animals in in our world, he would start with dolphins uh, because of their uh, apparent intelligence. Uh, I don't know the way that they react in terms of their society. They are different than us in some aspects, but they're very similar to us in some others. Do we know how far back animals like before we were experimenting on them before we were getting them drunk and high they were getting drunk and high how far back do we know that that goes you you speculated it, well, it could go back yeah, hundreds uh, of millions of years uh, absolutely uh, absolutely uh, i hope you remember the movie cavemen <laughs> but the point is that in one of the scenes uh there were being uh stalked by a t-rex and our heroes actually which happened to be Ringo Starr from the Beatles, uh, he actually got like a shrub, which looked like a weird marijuana poppy plant combination, and he started to hit the dinosaur with it. But then the dinosaur ate it, and in a nutshell, it got high. Uh, uh, okay? So, and that's, uh, uh, again, it, it was hilarious. Uh, uh, all right? But, but, but you've suggested that, I mean, like, like whatever, like psychoactive substances on our planet have evolved over hundreds of millions of years, existed hundreds of millions of years ago. So there's actually, there's actually some chance that dinosaurs may have been. Uh, absolutely, uh, we we have to to go again to the example of the elephant, uh, because it, how much, uh, for example, uh, psychoactive fungi could a dinosaur need, needed to eat? Uh, to get high. It must have been a prodigious amount. But there's every reason to be, believe that their nervous system was similar to ours. What other animals get get drunk or stoned in the wild? Oh, well, uh, there's many of them. Uh, for example, the, the proverbial story about how coffee was discovered, uh, it was supposed uh, about a, a young uh, goat uh, herder who observed when goats uh, nibbled on a certain plant, the seeds of a certain plant, and they got really wired up and jittery and they were running uh, around. And that's, uh, quote unquote, how coffee uh, came to be, uh, for us, uh, at least. Uh, you know that when uh, we have a dog or a cat that's like of sick in their stomach, they go in the yard and eat some, I don't know, grass or, or things like that. They have like an instinctive knowledge that they can self-medicate with that. And if we keep going back, uh, there's organisms that uh, display like a prodigious ability to metabolize alcohol, okay? Uh, one of the examples that, that I got was the uh, I.I., which is ca kind of a... It's like the cutest animal in the world. Oh, well... After, after your flatworm, the cutest after animal. The, yeah. After the flatworm. 
but the point is that animals like that, for example, a cer certain type of lemurs, they can actually ingest, uh, relatively speaking, higher amounts of alcohol compared to us. It's very difficult to get them drunk. What What's the funniest animal when it's drunk? I have direct experience with the planarians, but I'll have to go back to the koala because in one of the descriptions that uh, I found, there was a, a naturalist uh, who wrote to Darwin and he described then that the koalas will get really uh, kind of insistent uh, and aggressive when they wanted to the people to give them a little drink. They will climb onto them and they will scratch them and everything. And they will uh, steal their uh, pipes, their uh, tobacco pipes, and they will actually chew and, and lick uh, the, the residue on, on the tobacco. I know it's not alcohol, but it's uh, drug related. These are these are and, co I mean koalas. These are these cute little cuddly marsupials that live in the eucalyptus trees and exactly. and everybody loves and they think they're adorable. Yeah, I mean uh, they look like a plush toy, uh, and you you uh, for the life of me, I cannot relate them to drunkenness. You've observed that animals don't always act drunk in the ways that we might associate with drunkenness, and. And because of that, because animals act differently than we do, in order to know if they're drunken or not, there's there's actually a tool for this, right? Well, the, there's several techniques that, depending on the specific animal, will allow people to uh, to infer that they are well drunk. And I have a, a really cool contraption uh, for you to know about. It's called the inebriometer. The ini the the inebriometer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So, and this this is a tool that measures how, if I recall right, this this measures how drunk flies are. Yes. Yeah. Drunk fruit flies. So the inebriometer, it's like a glass tube with steps in it, like plastic steps, that you can actually put alcohol vapors from uh, beneath it and infuse the interior of the tube with alcohol vapors. Then you put flies, uh, you put the flies on top uh, of the tube. Okay, you get the flies in there. The flies that are uh, more easily drunk, they will fall. They will not be able to hang out for long to the glass and they will fall to the bottom. They were collected. The ones that are more, more resistant, they stay for longer and so on and so forth. And there's going to be certain uh, flies that are very resistant to alcohol. Originally, this contraption was invented to try to separate uh, populations of flies for evolutionary studies. And actually, you can actually separate populations of flies based on their resistance to alcohol. Let me ask you about these, these flies. Because so what you said is that we can separate them out for genetic research purposes, by figuring out which ones get drunk and which ones don't. Why is that important? What does that tell us? Uh, because by extrapolating that to humans, we can actually, for example, design compounds that can, let's say, alleviate psychoactive substances in humans. For Not just in terms of intoxication, but for toxicity. This sort of leads into this idea that... What happens when animals get drunk or stoned isn't just comparative biology. It might 
be part of the story of human evolution. And you write about this really interesting character, Terrence McKenna, who has proposed this pretty far out theory of human evolution. Can you describe the stoned ape hypothesis? Well, in a nutshell, he proposed an idea, I'm paraphrasing it, of course, stating that the development of consciousness in humans, he actually postulated that the development of consciousness in humans was triggered by the consumption of psychoactive fungi that grew on dung. On dung, like poop. Yes, yes. So the reason <laughs> why we have consciousness is because we ate fungi off of poop? That's what he says. What do you... <laughs> okay, so what... what okay. <laughs> I, I want to exp... understand this theory a little bit more. Okay, so humans come into association one way or another, apparently through mushroom poop, with the psychoactive substances. But how do we get from there to the development of consciousness? Well... He was even a more controversial scientist than uh, the other people that we have uh, talked about. What I think is that he reasoned that since many psychoactive substances, okay, you know, uh, especially like psychoactive fungi, we're talking about magic mushrooms and, and things like that, they will create altered states of consciousness that we could use such substances to dissect the actual mechanisms of conscious thought. How much stock do you put in this theory? Do you think it's plausible that the thing that separated, you know, that led to our eventual development to these really, really big brains, which presumably is what separates us from so many other animals on this planet, is that we, you know, got lucky in the way that we were getting high? Well, we definitely got lucky. Uh, because at some point in our evolutionary history, there were like several species of humans competing for our ecological uh, niche. All right. There was a veritable planet of the apes and, you know, the Neanderthals. We know now about the uh, Denisovans and, you know, the, the Hobbit uh, in, uh, in the Flores Island. So and we just happen to be the ones who won. But, you know, I touch upon this when I teach pharmacology to my students, and I basically don't know whether it was because of the development of consciousness or because we were the first one to invent weapons and, and decided to use them against others. Okay, that's a... But this could have been the same thing, right? I mean, like, we could have gotten high, looked down at a stone and went, hey, yeah. I know what to do with that. Yeah. Sorry. Why am I sorry for laughing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that that that's that's a certain possibility, but I, I don't think that the actual psychoactive substances were the trigger, because there there's nothing. Uh, and again, this is a controversial topic. People think that that humans are completely separate from nature, and that's simply not not, not true. Uh, the proverbial percent difference between ourselves and chimpanzees. It's about 2%, depending on who you ask and what paper do you read. I agree. What a wonderful 2%. We are laughing about uh, animals getting drunk and humans getting drunk and whatever. And one thing that I want to emphasize uh, that it's that we are not making fun of addiction and all the problems that it brings. Uh, okay, that's a very serious uh, issue. But if we can use humor to learn, 
that's bound to help. Oh, no, when when you spend so much time immersed in a subject, I think it's natural that it, it starts to infiltrate your thoughts, even when you're not actively working on it. And so I'm wondering what it's like for you now. If you pour a glass of wine or you crack open a beer, do these become scientifically reflective moments for you? Most definitely. I, I mean, I love my coffee, uh, even though I have to do decaf these days, you know, blame my doctor. Uh, but there's only three times in my whole life when I know that my mind has been completely blank. And that's when I saw each of my three children for the first time. Okay, because it was, uh, I assumed that I was looking at that baby and I was like, holy crap, I'm responsible for that. <laughs> you know, uh, but all other moments in my life, I'm thinking. And I love thinking about science. And of course, when I drink my coffee, I think about the receptors. I think uh, about how it's affecting my system. And I think about how can I use that and apply it to my own research? Because I want to understand. That's kind of what a scientist should be, I guess. That's One Pagan. His new book is called Drunk Flies and Stoned Dolphins. And as always, we encourage you to find it at or order it through your local bookseller. One, thank you. Thank you. It, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and stay safe and healthy. And if you can, out of trouble. I'll do my best. <laughs> Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>